0: Well, tonight we're going to be continuing in the book of Philippians. Now we're in chapter 2, and we'll be dealing with everything down to verse 8 of chapter 2. But let us read from verse 27 of chapter 1 in order to be reminded of the immediate context. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 27, down to chapter 2, verse 8. We read... But also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for your goodness and mercy towards us, Lord. Thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for giving us this, this great scripture that we have, your word, so that we can see your deeds. We can learn of you. We can, we can know who you are. Lord we thank you for sacrificing your son for us so that we can even see your beauty so that we can love you and worship you Father in keeping with that we ask that tonight as we look into your word that you open our minds open our hearts open our eyes to see the truth in your word help it to take root deep in our hearts to bear fruit to bring forth righteous living within us so Lord help us in this way now so that we can live lives that are worthy of the calling that you've given us we ask these things only in the matchless name of Christ Jesus Amen so to recap what we looked at in the previous sermon in this series that was a few weeks a couple weeks ago several weeks ago rather We looked at Paul's admonition to the Philippians to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that admonition followed Paul's report about his own circumstances as a prisoner in Rome. Paul's joyful endurance of his imprisonment served to advance the gospel in keeping with God's sovereign plan. Thus, Paul implored the Philippians to be like him, fearlessly proclaiming and defending the gospel. And as we saw last time, Christian unity was to be a central part of that endeavor to strive for the gospel. The Philippians were to have as the basis for their unity a common spirit and mind. A common attitude which held that the gospel and the glorification of God was of utmost importance in life. They were also to have a common belief in the essential doctrines of the faith to which they were called. And all of this empowered and supplied by the Holy Spirit. Well now continuing on from chapter 2, Paul expands on his command for the Philippians to be united. What we will see is that if the Philippians were to be genuinely united to one another, they would need to exhibit Christ-like humility. Thus, Paul presents the humility of Christ Jesus as the supreme example to which they were to look. So here's the point of the sermon tonight. And it's quite simple. Be humble like Christ. We're going to explore two main ideas tonight. The first will be the necessity of humility in Christian fellowship. And the second will be the humility of Christ in service to his people. So let's start by looking at the necessity of humility in Christian fellowship. Chapter 2 begins with Paul continuing to admonish the Philippians to unity. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What we should notice here, first of all, is the structure of Paul's admonition. There are ifs and there are thens. Ifs and thens. So what am I talking about? Well, if the weather is good, then I will go to the park. Or if I get hungry while I'm out, then I will eat my food. The ifs set the conditions for what is to be. So let's look at the ifs and thens in Paul's admonition. If there's any encouragement in Christ. If any comfort from love. If any participation in the spirit, if any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The if-then structure is important because it shows us that Christians have a responsibility to live a certain way. Or to put that another way, if you are a Christian, you will live in a certain way and exhibit certain characteristics. If such and such is true about you, then he will respond and live in such and such a way. So let's go through each one of these if statements because I want to make the case to you that Paul's if statements are actually the traits and characteristics of a Christian. So the first one, if there's any encouragement in Christ or if there's any consolation in Christ, Paul is speaking here of the encouragement it is To be united with Christ. Being in Christ. The ease it is of knowing your sins have been forgiven. That you share in the rich blessings. That have been won for you by Jesus. Of knowing that you were chosen in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. It's as if Paul is asking them. Have you experienced the encouragement it is. To be united with Christ. And everything that that implies the second if there's any comfort from love haven't you experienced the love of Jesus have you not been comforted by the reality that God showed his love for you and that while you were still a sinner Christ died for you have you not also been comforted by the love that Paul your minister on behalf of Christ has shown you in enduring much hardship to see that you grow spiritually to ensure that you know the truth Is there an appreciation for what has been done for you by Christ and His ministers? Is it a comfort to you? The third, if there's any participation in the Spirit, does the Holy Spirit of God indwell you? Has He been given to you as a guarantee and seal of your salvation? Do you share in the life giving Spirit in whom all believers share? Are the fruits of the Spirit being produced in your life? And the fourth and last one, if there's any affection and sympathy, if there has been any moving of the love of God towards you, have you experienced compassion and mercy from God? And if so, do you in like manner have compassion and affection and sympathy and mercy towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? Having been loved by God, do you love others? Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer Then each one of the statements we just went through Is characteristic of you to some degree Paul implores the the Philippians by the traits of a true Christian And here's the thing Paul doesn't doubt their salvation We saw that in chapter 1 So really we could replace the word if With the word since Since there's encouragement in Christ Since there's comfort from love Since there is participation in the Spirit. Since there is affection and sympathy. Then, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If you are a Christian, or rather, since you are a Christian, then you are responsible to live in a certain way. Well, now we can look at the thens in Paul's admonition. If the things that we just looked at are true, then certain implications and responsibilities follow. If indeed we are in Christ and have all of the privileges, benefits, and blessings that come with being in Christ, then we are required to live lives worthy of Christ. In the context of Philippians 2, we see what that means. Paul says, Complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The first implication we see is Paul telling the Philippians to complete his joy. Or to bring him joy to a more full degree. And this makes sense. Those who give themselves to bring us the good news and invest themselves in seeing us grow, our ministers, they understandably have a love and care for us. It's not hard to see how they would find joy in us. It's similar to a father and his children. They take a special interest in our upbringing in the faith. Think of what a joy it is. To see your children growing. I remember once I was watching Eliza, my two-year-old daughter, eat her breakfast. And it just made me so happy. Just to see her there just mouthful, just eating, looking all happy. To see your child being nourished is something special. It just brings you joy and it's so simple. Well, this is how Paul feels about his spiritual children. He finds joy in seeing them nourished by the truth and then living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Walking in obedience to Christ. These believers to whom he brought the gospel, whom he cares for, he says to them, complete my joy. Don't bring me sorrow by being disobedient to the faith and the doctrine that I deliver to you. Don't bring me sorrow by dishonoring God and his Christ. Rather, complete my joy. Those of us who sit under the nurture of caring ministers have a responsibility to live in a way that is worthy of the care and attention that we've been given. If ever we are tempted to take such care and attention lightly, we must remind ourselves that this care comes first from our Heavenly Father Himself. It doesn't originate with our pastor, it originates with God. When our ministers in the church take care of us, it is really and ultimately God who is taking care of us. And we should shudder to think of spurning the love, care, and affection of God. So recognize that one of the means God uses to care for us is our pastors. So we ought not to disregard their care. To do so would be to disregard the care of God. With that said, remember the ifs we just looked at. If there's any affection and sympathy. And that is both from God and His ministers towards you and to you towards God and his ministers then there should be a desire in you to bring joy to those who labor for your growth and also note that this affection and sympathy is not just between you and your ministers but it is shared among your brothers and sisters in the church recall that when Jesus prayed for his disciples and his church before he was arrested he prayed that they would complete his joy by loving each other It is important to understand that if you are concerned with bringing joy to your master, as you should be, then loving others is a must. It's not optional. Bringing them joy through our righteous, unified living is how we do this. The next implication of Paul's ish that we see is actually him reiterating what he had said in chapter 1. If you are Christians, then you will be united. Remember, remember from what we saw last time that there was to be a common attitude about the supremacy of Christ and his gospel. Also, there was to be a unity in the essential doctrines among the members of the Philippian church. Now, it would seem that there was some conflict in the church in Philippi which prompted Paul to press them to be united. In chapter 4, it is hinted at as he tells Eurya and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He wants them to be in full accord of one mind. And this is where the necessity of humility comes in. Genuine unity requires humility. Genuine unity requires humility. Whatever the disagreement was between Yodia and Syntyche, humility would be necessary to settle it. Why is that? Well, often when we disagree we become solely focused on proving our point. That is, we get a sort of tunnel vision such that all we are concerned about is winning the argument. And what often happens is that things like graciousness and humility are completely forgotten. We become so focused on this is the truth and you must accept it right away. We get so focused on that that we completely disregard our behavior while standing for that truth. But what we need to remember is that we aren't just commanded to have our theology right. But also to behave in a way that is consistent with that theology. We as Christians are compelled to live according to the truth of scripture. Thus we are commanded to be humble and gracious. Even when we disagree. And God is so wise in teaching us this. Because when you have a group of Christians who are obeying God in that they are really on fire for truth and knowing God as He has revealed Himself, then sharp disagreements are sure to arise. After all, if the truth is really that important, and it is, you're not just going to shrug when you encounter something being taught or said that isn't in accord with that truth. You're going to say something, you're going to speak up. So humility is necessary because it controls our passions. It tempers how we respond in conflict. It keeps us from becoming puffed up and reminds us that we are not infallible. It reminds us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. It reminds us that everything we know, we had to be taught. And those with whom we disagree need to be shown grace as they learn. It tempers our speech and reminds us that we are not just to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love now I'm not saying that there aren't times when a sharp rebuke uh, isn't necessary I'm not saying that we should shy away from speaking truth when we anticipate things could get heated what I am saying though is that pride should never be present in our disagreements you see pride says I am smarter than you so you need to accept what I'm saying right away Humility, however, says, we are only sinners, saved by grace, and we must submit ourselves to the instruction and correction of God as given in scripture. You see, pride would have you root the authority of correction in yourself, but humility roots that authority rightly in the word of God. You are simply but a humble carrier of that truth. This is very important to remember as we go about our various debates in the church community, or anywhere for that matter. Some people shy away from having passionate discussions about religion or theological matters because they think that discussing such topics is what causes divisions in the church. In reality, it's more that a lack of humility is what causes divisions in the church. I'm saying our zeal for truth is a good thing, but let it be accompanied by humility. The last implication of Paul's ifs is that we are to value others. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, firstly, what does it even mean to count others as more significant than yourself? As I was preparing this message, I sat pondering that. And I could not figure out what that really meant. What does that mean practically? Then I realized all I had to do was read the next line for some context. It became very clear from that point. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Counting others as being more significant than yourself means primarily looking out for the well-being of others above your own at all times the Christian must be asking how can I care for my brothers and sisters this has huge implications for our lives this is not a small thing realize that every decision you make how you decide to spend your time how you decide to spend your money even your thoughts and prayers all of it must be done while considering others At all times you must be thinking to yourself, I am but a humble and lowly servant in my master's house. The well-being of my brethren is more important than my own. How can I benefit them? How can I use my time to benefit them? How can I use my money or my resources to benefit them? Let me dedicate some time and thoughtful prayer on their behalf. You see, this is how we think when we regard others as being more important than ourselves. As Paul says, we look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And notice this the alternative to humbly considering others as more important than yourself isn't simply being a mediocre Christian, it's rivalry and conceit, as the scripture says. It's pride in oneself that brings about competition in the church. The alternative to humility is an attitude that says my own concerns and desires are paramount in my life. If I have leftover afterward, well, maybe I'll get a little something, but. My own interests come first and nothing is allowed to rival that. It's about me and if you get in the way of what I want and what I desire... I will work my hardest to make sure that in the end my desires are satisfied my pleasures are sought after and my dreams are attained I take priority in my life no one else does that sound like a Christian to you? not according to Philippians 2 as a matter of fact it reminds me of the insincere preachers from chapter 1 who are preaching the gospel out of their own selfish reasons not sincerely that kind of thinking is evil It is self-serving and it is boastful. And furthermore, it denies that God looks out for us and cares for us. That selfish attitude seeks to care for itself and be satisfied by its own means as opposed to being cared for and satisfied by the Father. One of the ways God intends to care for us is by the selflessness of our brethren. You see... When I consider my brother or sister above my own needs, there's a brother and sister who is considering me above theirs. This is what Paul is calling us to. A community of like-minded, humble servants, each selflessly caring for and helping each other. And unless we humble ourselves, we cannot live like this. So now in light of all that we've been saying about humility... It would be helpful if we had an example to follow. Praise be to God that he has provided one. This brings us to our second point tonight. After all of the admonishments to good Christian living that Paul has given, he points them to their savior, Jesus Christ. He is the prime example of humility. So let's spend some time now looking at what is undoubtedly one of the greatest theological pillars of Christianity. And that is the condescension of Jesus. Now I'll define that word condescension in a bit. But for now, let us read what Paul says from verse 5. It reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross now let me state here that we cannot understand the unmatched quality of Christ's humility unless we understand the condescension understanding the condescension informs our understanding of Christ's humility so that's why we're going to explore it for a bit tonight Firstly though, let's clear up some possible confusion by defining our terms. The word condescension or condescending is used by theologians to describe to describe rather Jesus' act of humility. And it is one of those words that has done a 180 over the years. Its meaning has changed so drastically that it now means the opposite of what it used to in centuries past. Today, if you said that someone was condescending, you would mean that they were arrogant and prideful and even seeking to humiliate you. That guy is so condescending. I hear that all the time. The modern-day Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word condescension as showing or characterized by patronizing or superior attitude to others. Showing or characterized by a patronizing or superior attitude to others. In other words, someone thinks that they're better than you, so they treat you like you're stupid. That's basically what the word has come to mean. Now it should be clear that the word, when used in this way, does not at all describe Jesus. But listen to the word's definition as printed in the 1828 edition of the Webster's Dictionary. Descent from right, dignity, or just claims. Relinquishment of strict Right. Submission to inferiors in granting requests or performing acts which strict justice does not require. Hence, courtesy. I'll read it again. Descent from rank, dignity, or just claims. Relinquishment of strict right. Submission to inferiors in granting requests or performing acts which strict justice does not require. Hence, courtesy. Now that sounds more like Christ. As we look at the condescension of Jesus, try to keep that definition in mind with regard to everything you know about what Jesus has done for his people. Lowering yourself in rank and honor. Denying yourself what is rightfully yours. Submitting one's time and energy to the needs of others when you are under no obligation to do so. So keep that in mind. So if that cleared up... Let's get back to why the concept of the condescension is so significant. It's significant because of who Jesus was and then who he became. Understand that Jesus for eternity was God. Almighty. All-knowing. Ever-present God. Infinitely beautiful. Full of majesty and worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And in the condescension... He made himself a servant, lowly, weak, dependent, limited by time and space. No glory or majesty that we should be attracted to him. Just another carpenter's son from a small town that was infamous for never producing anything good. My point is to get us to recognize the great height from which our Savior came to rescue us. How low he had to stoop to reach us. He's not merely a human king condescending to his human subjects. He didn't simply get up from a chair or a throne in a castle and take off his crown and his royal robes. And put on peasants clothing and simply go outside to live like one of the people. What Jesus did goes far beyond that. Jesus was the eternal creator God who condescended to we who are but dust. Dust. We whose lives are like the grass Like the flower of the field Which when the wind blows over it It is gone And there's no more remembered Think about the great difference Between God and man The great distance Between God and man It reminds me of that hymn Oh the love that drew salvation's plan, Oh the grace that brought it down to man Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. You can't fully comprehend the gulf or the distance between God and man. But the recognition that you can't should sweeten your appreciation for what Jesus did in spanning that unfathomable distance. So let's keep looking at the condescension. Verse 6 says... Verse 6 says... That Jesus was in the form of God, or the very nature of God. In the New American Standard Bible it says, he existed in the form of God. Pastor John MacArthur notes, and I quote, The usual Greek word for existed or being is not used here. Instead, Paul chose another term that stresses the essence of a person's nature. His continuous state or condition. Paul could have also chosen one of the two Greek words for form. But he chose the one that specifically denotes the essential, unchanging character of something. What it is in and of itself. End quote. So let's get that straight right away. When the scripture says that Jesus was in the form of God, it is saying that Jesus was God. His very essential nature is divine. And then the next line says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, Jesus, being God, did not seek to hold on to that which he already possessed and was rightfully his, namely, equality with God. Instead, he willingly put aside his rights to come to our rescue, even though he was under no obligation to do so. So recall our definition of the word condescension. All of those aspects are seen in Christ Jesus. Now remember, we're looking at the significance of the condescension as seen in who Jesus was and what he became. We just looked at the fact that Jesus was God, but now look at what he became for our sake. Verse 7 says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let's look at this because it is theologically very important. What does it mean to say that Jesus emptied himself? Well, let's just say straight away, it does not mean that Jesus stopped being divine. It does not mean that Jesus stopped being God. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, there was no change in his nature as eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God. Rather, Scripture tells us that his emptying himself had to do with him taking on the form of a servant, or the nature of a man. We will explore this in a few minutes, but first, I want to make sure there is no confusion regarding Jesus taking on a second nature, that is, the human nature, while still keeping his original divine nature. Orthodox Christianity affirms that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, instead of only having one nature, the divine nature, now has two natures since he came to live on earth. He has the divine nature and the human nature. Now let me say the reality of Christ's two natures can be very difficult to wrap your head around. It's even harder to explain. Any theologian that tells you that they fully understand the hypostatic union, Christ's two natures, says he fully understands that. Nope, he does not. But we must try. If we are to rightly think about Jesus. All right? So let me reiterate Jesus did not stop being divine. Rather, he emptied himself not by subtracting or taking away from his divine nature, but by assuming or taking a second nature, the human nature, the nature of a servant. Now, when I say Jesus took on the human nature or added to himself the human nature, still some confusion could arise some might think that the human nature was added to the divine nature in a similar way to how a baker would add water and flour to make dough but that is incorrect the problem is such an act would change the nature of both the water and the flour such that they are no longer the same as they were before you with me still? The flower would no longer be purely flower since it is now chemically bonded to the water. And the water would no longer be purely water since it is now chemically bonded to the flower. If we apply this logic to the case of Jesus, it would mean that his divine nature would be different from what it was originally. It would mean that Jesus' divinity had some humanity mixed in. And this is heresy. Let's get that clear. It's heresy. The divine nature does not change. This is the reason why God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God does not grow or shrink. He does not learn or forget. He does not evolve over time. He stays the same. So in our understanding of Jesus taking on the human nature along with the divine nature that he already had, we must be careful not to mix the two natures. Alright? Now if you're still confused, let me try another analogy that might be helpful. Hopefully I don't get stoned. If we think of Jesus' divine nature as a box And his human nature as a smaller box It would be wrong to think that At the moment when Jesus was conceived in his mother's womb That the smaller box containing Jesus' human nature was picked up And placed inside the box of Jesus' divine nature If that had been the case It would now mean that Jesus' divine nature had changed Since the human nature is now a part of it When it wasn't before Okay? Okay? it is now inside the divine box when it wasn't there before. So that is not what I mean when I say that Jesus took on or added to himself a new nature. Rather, it is more like Jesus' divine nature is a box and his human nature is another box side by side. The, context, the contents rather, of either box do not mix such that Jesus' divine nature is truly and purely divine and its human nature is truly and purely human. And neither is it a half and half mix whereby the boxes were each cut in half and half the divine box was picked up and half the human box was picked up and they were taken and glued together. He wasn't part God and part man. He was truly God and truly man. To further make the point to you, there are two words that will be helpful here. The word distinct And the word separate, distinct and separate. We often use those words interchangeably, but they're different. For example, my arm is not separate from my torso, thank God. But my arm is distinct from my torso. The two are together, but you can distinguish between the two. Likewise, to say that Jesus' two natures are separate would be incorrect. They are present together in one person. The Jesus of Nazareth that we worship, that we see in scripture, has two natures. Divine and human, and the two are not separate. Since the incarnation, they are present, they are both present in the person of Jesus. Jesus is both God and man. That is who Jesus is. And remember our, knowledge, remember our analogy, you can't take those two boxes and move them from beside each other. They're not separate, but together in one person. But they are distinct. You can distinguish between the two. Divinity is not humanity, and humanity is not divinity. You can point to one box and identify it positively as the divine box, and point to the other and identify it positively as the human box. For even more help, listen to what the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith affirms about the condescension of Jesus. And I quote, Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? End quote. So all of that to say, Jesus emptying himself does not mean that he stopped being God. Rather, as verse 7 says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. The majestic and awesome creator who dwells in unapproachable light made himself like us. Before, Christ's glory was shone with such a radiance that even the angels shielded their eyes. But now, in a state of humiliation, in a condescension, he doesn't even stand out in a crowd. If you stood next to Jesus 2,000 years ago in a market in Galilee, you wouldn't know there was anything special about him. He was in the form of his servant and his glory was veiled. But Christ's humiliation went beyond his form or his appearance. Indeed, his humiliation was manifest even in his actions. He became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Think about that. Jesus was the sovereign ruler of all creation. The one who has in himself the right to command but he emptied himself and became a servant. He became a man, one who is duty bound to obey. He took the form of a servant born under the law. He made himself subject to the law's demands. Imagine that. He was the great lawgiver. But now he is subject to the law. Not only that, but in becoming like us, he made himself subject to the effect of the curse. He got weary. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He felt the pain of thorns. He had back pain. The heat of the sun beat upon him during the day, and the cold would have been at him by night. Jesus suffered while he was in a state of humiliation. And notice this, his sufferings were unique. No one ever suffered like Jesus. Why? Because his capacity for suffering was proportional, rather, to his perfection. His ethical perfection. His perfect sense of righteousness and holiness. What that means is that Jesus experienced pain, and rather he experienced the pain and the offense of sin so much more deeply than we do. And he had to live among sinners. And eventually sinners murdered him. All of these things he subjected himself to. Furthermore, Jesus made himself obedient to the Father in all things. Christ set aside his own authority. He said, not my will be done, but my Father's will. Indeed, Jesus became obedient even to a humiliating death. The scriptures tell us in Galatians 3.13 that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree what a humiliating way for a perfect and righteous man to die but Christ went willingly in obedience to that wooden cross and all of this so that he could live the life that we could not live because of our sin and die the death that we deserve to die because of our sin all of this he did not for himself because he was God, he was in need of nothing. But all of this he did for us. Can you see now how Christ's humility and condescension relates to Paul's admonition to the Philippians to be humble and count others as more valuable than yourself? It's because Christ counted his people as more important than himself. Thus he endured great suffering for their sake, in service to them. If you want to see the perfect example of of setting aside one's own self-interest in service to others, look no further than Christ Jesus. Jesus endured the humiliation of the condescension to save you, to save me, to save all of us who believe. He didn't cling to that which was rightly his, his equality with God. He wasn't thinking of himself when he came to earth. He was setting the example to which Paul points us think of others as more important than yourselves. Don't stand on your own rights, but be willing to give them up for the sake of others. You know what the Apostle Paul has been explaining to us in these verses in Philippians, the Gospel of John actually portrays for us with the account of the washing of the disciples' feet in the upper room. What you will notice when you consider these two portions of scripture is that they actually mirror each other both display the humble condescension of Jesus in service to his people both display three key aspects of humility the setting aside of rights the lowering of oneself in rank or status and acts of service to others let's briefly read John 13 verses 3 to 5 It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Notice the parallels here. In verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, we learn that although Jesus was divine and equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit, he did not count equality with them a thing to be grasped. Though equality with God was his right, he willingly lowered himself to the rank of a servant. And in John 13 verse 3, we see Jesus knowing that he came from God and was going back to him. He had come from the glory of God and was going back to that same glory that he had with the Father in the beginning. Yet he was about to perform a very humble act by washing the feet of those who were at an evil le- that were at an even lesser rank than he. Despite his status as God, he set aside his rights. And then in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2, we learn that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He lowered himself from the status of ruler to the status of servant. He laid aside his status as one who commands to become one who obeys. This mirrors John 13 where Jesus laid aside his outer garments. This is significant because in doing so, he assumed a less dignified position than his disciples. Imagine it. If you could have walked in on them in that upper room, you would have found all the disciples dressed for supper. But then there's this one guy with his outer garments off and a towel wrapped around his waist, kneeling over a water basin. If you saw this, you would immediately assume that he was the servant. Rather than an honored guest at this feast, he is just the help. And that's the point. Even Peter was astounded by this humility. Lord, you will never wash my feet. But our Lord humbly lowered Himself in rank and status. And lastly, notice the parallel between Philippians two, verse eight, and John thirteen, verse five. In both, we see that the humility of Jesus led Him to serve His people. In John, we learn that Jesus washed His disciples His disciples' feet with water from a basin, and in Philippians, we learn that. Jesus' humility led him to the cross where he washed away their sins with his own blood. And not their sins only, but the sins of all who would believe, yours and mine. He served us in the most significant way imaginable. Jesus' words to his disciples after he had washed their feet are also recorded for us. He says... If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. And years later, the Apostle Paul would write to the Philippians, echoing the same admonition, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Brothers and sisters, after hearing of the great humility of Jesus, we are meant to be moved to follow his example. However, living out such selfless humility is indeed a daunting prospect. But be encouraged. We have not been left to accomplish this on our own. Remember that the humility of Jesus was in service to his people. Remember that the purpose for accepting the state of humiliation was for us. Remember that what Jesus has accomplished for us. Remember what He has won for us. We have been made new in Christ. Given new hearts to love God. And eyes to see His goodness. We've been given a special love for all of those who are in the body of Christ. Our family in Christ. Through the work... Of Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit has been given to us and is working in us for his glory. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not only left us an example to follow in his various acts of humility. But by his death, he has actually made our own humility before God possible. So be humble like Christ. Relinquish your rights and think of others as more significant than yourself. Look after their interests above your own. And as you look upon Christ in the scriptures, seeing the example he has left us and marveling at his deeds, be encouraged that he has made it possible for you too to take up your own cross, denying yourself and humbly following him. Amen.